Hello and welcome to Fire Away, Redner Law's online show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Redner. I'm an employment lawyer and mediator and your host of this, Seasons 3, Episode 7 of Fire Away, our first episode in quite a while if not COVID-focused, although I suspect we're going to find a way to work COVID into the discussion at some point. Just a reminder that Fire Away streams live every month, and if you miss an episode or want to watch one again, they're always available on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, on LinkedIn, and on our website. If you are watching live, always happy to answer your questions as we go. So feel free to ask them by posting a comment on Facebook or YouTube or tweeting to at Law. Today's topic is going to be non-COVID related, as I said, workplace bullying and harassment. And I'm very excited to be joined by someone I've had the pleasure of meeting recently, Denise Coster. Denise is the principal and founder of Coster Consulting and Associates, and she has recently published a book. The book is called Refusing to Accept the Unacceptable, The Trials, Tribulations, and Triumphs of Workplace Bullying and Harassment. I have to tell you that I it's only provided with a copy of that recently, and it's hard to put down. It is extremely compelling, and I encourage all of you to check it out. Uh, but I'm very excited to have Denise. So Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart, very much. I'm very excited to be here today. I think it should be a great discussion. It's one that, that doesn't seem to go away. We've been talking about bullying and harassment in the workplace for a long, far longer than we were talking about COVID-19. Um, but it's a really important one as well. And, and as I said in the intro, I appreciate you sending me a digital copy of the book, uh, which I did find extremely compelling. I usually read fiction when I try to get away from work, but uh, this was hard to put down. So what prompted you to write the book? Well, it was a long journey to write the book. My company um, has been, uh, I started in 1994. It was 25th anniversary of my company. Um, I've been asked on a number of um, times during sessions to, oh, you should write a book. And I'm known as a storyteller in regards to how I provide education. And I just really wanted to capture all the experiences that I have had through the eyes of my clients over the, the 25 years that I've worked. Um, I think I tried to give a voice to the people, but I thought it was extremely um, important also to give tools and education to um, HR professionals, people that are working in occupational health and safety to really understand the um, this issue and how to, how to manage it and hopefully prevent it from even occurring in the workplace. Yeah, I kind of feel like we're on a late night talk show and you're on here promoting your new book. But uh, I think it's really important to do that because the book does provide some really interesting examples of what people have have experienced in real life, but also some guidance, both for people, uh, how to handle situations where they are being bullied or are being harassed, or as you said, for HR or business owners, how to deal with those situations or how to deal with complaints that arise. And then I know we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. But before we do, I uh, was hoping you might be able to share some of the more you know, compelling situations that you have either been involved with or have been learned about through your work over, over the last uh, 30 years, right? Right. So, uh, well, my, my story kind of began with a, a story, uh, was a murder of a client in the 80s. And then that was, I would consider my first compelling story that kind of drew, drew me into the world of workplace violence. Um, a number of situations that I've been involved with, again, everyone says you must, you know, have heard everything and I don't, I get shocked every day. Um, 
a story of a man that um, was having such an issue at work being bullied by his manager that he deliberately drove his car into a tree in order to get some time off of work. Um, an individual who was um, working in an organization um, on probation, new to, new to the career and ended up um, bringing forward on probation, the fact that they were being bullied by senior management, um, terrified of the outcome. But at the end of that, uh, the individual that was in senior management position ended up um, being terminated from the position and 17 other people came forward. Um, you know, sexual harass cases where, you know, a woman that her first Canadian job experience was um, received text messages, hundreds and hundreds of sexual text messages from her soon to be boss and was too afraid to say anything, um, not being able to support her family and also being new to, to Canada, to the laws, um, an individual that went from the front lines into senior management, um, up the lines over a 20 year period of time, was bullied for a course of three months and um, was bullied so badly by the individuals that she used to work beside, uh, she ended up taking her life. And I was working on the case at that time. Yeah, and, and the scary part is, because I've read the book, that's just you know, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there are so many more stories that you talk about in the book and so many more that we've all heard. But uh, kind of like you, I, I never never cease to be shocked by the cases that either we handle at Revenue Law or just the ones that we read about. And, and they're just some of them are absolutely horrific. And, you know, it, it's been interesting over the last, I guess, seven or eight years, roughly, in the evolution of, of sexual harassment in the workplace in particular. And I've, you know, our firm, we like to do a lot of presentations, uh, usually the seminar, seminars, now they're more webinars, um, but we do a lot of presentations and I've said this many times that, you know, the past decade we had the Jan Gomeshi scandal here, which really brought sexual harassment into the forefront and into the discussion in the media and into society. There was an increase in awareness, there was an increase in complaints, um, but then we had the criminal trial of Jan Gomeshi and we saw what happened to the complainants there. and that really discouraged a lot of people from coming forward. And then in Ontario, we have Bill 132. Um, and then we also had the Harvey Weinstein scandal and the Me Too movement, and it has seemed to bring it back, where we're certainly seeing a lot more people come forward than they used to in the past. And that's, I think we, we know or we see a lot less acceptance of the type of behavior uh, and a lot more willingness on, on the part of employers to take action. Um, but nevertheless, there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, where do you see the biggest issues or the biggest problem areas when we're talking about harassment or, or sexual harassment in the workplace? I think the focus of my work has changed over the years where I realized that there's generally two people that are involved, either the, you know, the complainant and the respondent or the harasser and the victim, however you want to use terms. Um, but I'm actually finding that what really can make a difference is the bystanders. I think that there are so many people within organizations that choose to be innocent bystanders and there's no such thing as an innocent bystander. By saying nothing, they're actually giving power to the oppressed, uh, oppressor, not the oppressed. And I've learned that when I've um, some studies have even shown that, you know, one in 30 tend to or have bullying tendencies. So when I do education or training, I have people say, oh, Denise, we want to schedule the training at the time that the bullies are there. 
And to me, that's absolutely irrelevant. I think the whole issue around um, people will say to me, you know, Denise, teach us how to teach us how to change the bully. And my take is if we could change people, we wouldn't be required to divorce them. And the three-year-old would go inside the car seat without complaining. I think that what I try to do is really empower or, or speak to the 29 people in the room that are standing around saying it's not my business. And I think if more people were to step up and be on the side of the target, because I can tell you in most organizations, I can walk into any organization and Anyone I speak to will know who's getting it, who's giving it, who the bully is, who the victim is. But it's fascinating that we live in a world where somebody will see a car roll over on the highway, jam their brakes on, call 911, but someone will walk away from someone that's having a panic attack or crying at work. So I think that my my hope is that the bystanders or the amount of people, I believe in the greater good. If there wasn't, I wouldn't be able to do the work that we do. I try to put the the pressure for lack of a better word on the greater good to actually step up when they know something's happening to actually be a witness to the situation or to be able to support that individual who, who's going through that trauma as opposed to saying better to you than me i have to keep my job also so it raises a really interesting question and it actually reminds me of an experience i had years ago now and i don't remember which scandal this happened after but i remember it was actually at a funeral of all places and after the service we were all gathered in the parking lot and just chatting it was probably about 10 or 12 of us and talking about this you know sexual harassment scandal that had just broken it may have been john gameshi um because a lot of our discussion was around the fact that it was so started off as around the fact that it was so shocking that the company knew about it and allowed it to continue and didn't do anything but then, of course, as we went around this group, every single person there who worked in, you know, they all worked in different places, everyone could name the, you know, the perpetrator in their company, the person that everyone knew was a bully or was a harasser, the person that you knew that you didn't, you know, let the, the young female interns work with alone. Everyone, every company had one, but no one was doing anything about it. So um, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you get, you know, I'm not talking about the managers or the supervisors, but how do you get the, uh, of everyday workers, the colleagues, to actually do something when they see this type of behavior? I think it comes, it, it comes down to um, not only people knowing their legal responsibilities, that um, you know, they're obligated under the Ministry of Labor, they're obligated under um, you know, different employer-employee um, requirements to actually come forward. Um, although many people know that, I think that um, I've heard responses from doing the education and, and speaking. Um, I think the cases actually do speak to people. I don't think there's anybody that actually has ever come up to me. And I've talked to well over a million people and no one has ever walked up to me and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. People have that experience in their homes. People have their experience with their neighbors. Um, and I just think that um, shining a light on those individuals, but shining a light in a way that they, their protection or that whistleblower protection that everyone seems to talk about um, is actually really easy to get around. People get their hours cut. People, I think there has to be a, such a strict monitoring on, on the process, but I also think that people need to be, take accountability when they do nothing. Um, 
And, and there's all sorts of reasons that people don't step forward. But in the case where, I'll, just a very quick example, the case where the um, individual went to senior leadership and ended up committing suicide, um, I attended the funeral and um, the mother of the, um, the individual that took their life uh, stood in, at the end of the, the funeral services, the, the mother stood up in her 70s had to be carried up to the front of the church pretty much and looked at the group of people, including the 14 people that worked in that organization and pointed her fingers. And she said one sentence, she said, you people need to be ashamed of yourself. And she walked through and she found the 14 people in that organization and made them accountable. And that might be a drastic way, but there were two bullies and there were 14 people or 12 people that stood around and watched this person basically pushed off a cliff and people mm -hmm. didn't say anything. Yeah, that's it's a great uh, it's a great example. It's a sad story, but it's a great example. But and you're right what you said earlier. A lot of people they just, they want to keep their jobs. They don't want to take a risk, so they won't do anything. Or the other thing that I we still see often, and you probably see it a lot more than I do, is the victim says, "Don't do anything about it." Uh, and you know, one of my uh, favorite stories from probably about a decade ago now, long before the Jan Gomeshi scandal. Uh, was a case, you know, where the importance of disseminating your policies is what I, the why I use this example because I had a client, uh, it was a new client to me at the time when they contacted me about this incident. They had great sexual harassment and bullying policies, uh, but what had happened is they were a manufacturing facility, largely male, male dominated, and one of the few females in the workplace came off her shift and went to her supervisor who was male, and said, "I just wanted to tell you that so and so has been making you know somewhat inappropriate comments." And the supervisor who I met in the course of my uh, my involvement was an older gentleman. And you could see how he reacted by saying, I'll go talk to him. And the woman who complained said, no, 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 please don't do anything. Don't say anything. I just want to tell you, but I don't want you to do anything about it. And so this older gentleman, the supervisor, thought he was respecting her wishes and didn't do anything about it. And you can guess how this ended. It got worse and worse. She eventually went off on a medical leave of absence. And then they got the very aggressive demand letter from her lawyer, alleging not only that she'd been the victim of harassment, but also that they had breached their own policies. Because, of course, their policy said any supervisor who becomes aware of harassment has a positive duty to report it. But nobody ever told the supervisor about that. Um, so I think that's a very common issue. But I guess getting back to the, you know, the, the general point here, uh, what do you tell people when they say, well, I didn't report this because the victim, I spoke to the victim, and they told me not to. Well, my response to that, and I've had several um, leaders that unfortunately are in leadership positions, but are not necessarily um, trained or given the skill base to be able to how to know how to assess and take complaints, um, which is extremely critical. And I sort of do the the three words for them. And I just say knowledge equals accountability equals liability. And once you have knowledge, you have accountability. So I developed an uh, actual model called a care model that I do training on, which is it, it focuses on taking and assessing complaints. And it focuses on the issue of confidentiality, accountability, and retaliation. I think what's happened in the, in the past is someone comes forward and says, you know, come here, Stuart, I have something to tell you, but you can't say anything. I say, stop, stop right there. You can't tell me a thing until I actually tell you of the rules of engagement right here. 
So whatever you're about to say, I'll keep confidential to the best of my ability. Should you say something that's a breach of policy, procedure, health and safety, workplace harassment, sexual harassment, whatever list you want to provide them with, I will in fact have to go forward. Then it all, and then it actually gives an opportunity. Unfortunately, some people may walk away and mm -hmm. say, well, you're making this too complicated. I don't, I, I just want to tell you, I'm just here to vent. But I think that putting that cart before the horse, so to speak, is a much more effective way because I think oftentimes managers are given information. And then when that person finally does go a legal route or ends up going to have a medical leave, they will say, I told the manager and the manager did nothing. And I had a case where a union was involved and for two and a half years, two people that had disabilities were bullied. They had gone to the manager in secrecy. The manager was actually quite outstanding, took copious notes, supported them the best she could. But at the end of the day, when it did come out and it ended up um, going just before an arbitration, the union actually said to the employer, we understand that our member did all these terrible things to these two individuals, but if they were so bad, why are they still working here? <laughs> so what ended up happening was the employer, or excuse me, the employer, the uh, respondent ended up getting um, um, deployed to another organize or another department and could reapply for their position in six months. And the manager who kept the information was terminated from her position. Hmm. So ultimately, I think that people don't realize that it's not it's not a club. It's not you're not my friend. You take a manager position. Someone comes to you with information. I always say always think it's going to either become go to court or it's going to become a public inquiry. And you're going to be put right on in front of everybody and have to defend yourself against potentially a family member to say your child or your child or your mother or your, your daughter lost their life. I knew about it, but they told me they didn't want me to say anything. So I think it's that balance of people trying to be good and supportive to an individual to say no, but I also have accountability as an as a manager or as a leader in an organization. Yeah, I think that's great advice. You know, as soon as a person says, I don't want you to say anything, you can stop them right away and tell them that, you know, you'll do whatever you can, yeah. but you may well have to take action or, or report this. So that's great advice. And I wanted to ask you what, what other advice you'd have for those in HR or, or any manager really who has someone come to them and report bullying or harassment in the workplace. Well, I think they need to, I think they need to take it extremely seriously. I think that they, um, they have to, um, they have to address the fact that they have a confirmation or excuse me, a bias. Um, managers have, uh, employees that they they either support and they think are wonderful and they have other ma when I was a manager it's like where's you know don't let the door hit you on the way out they don't necessarily like that or care for that employer or even think they're competent so when that individual comes in to complain they're going to look at it differently than when someone else comes in and says oh you know an individual did something terrible to me. So I think that they what they need to do is I always tell people take the personalities out of the complaint. You're not investigating a person, you're you're investigating an act. And if you're not able to actually 
process in the mind and just go, I'm just going to listen. I'm going to try to put my bias to the side about what I believe about this individual or not. And if they're not able to do that, then they can't be involved in the case. Um, but I know that several times when I've in, in, in interviewed complainants that they've said to me, you know, I went four times. I have notes. I have dates and times that I went forward. And then when I asked the manager, they're like, I never really thought it was such a big deal. So I didn't, I didn't do that. So I think that it's owning it. It's saying I am in the position taking and assessing complaints and investigations are part of my job duties, not on, not add-ons. Too many managers say things like if they, they're adults, I'm not here to babysit. They should be able to handle this. Well, if they could handle it, they wouldn't be standing in your office crying or they wouldn't be going home and drinking or yelling at their children. If they could handle it, the manager wouldn't even be aware that there was an issue because there wouldn't be one. Right. Yeah, I've heard that many times as well. Managers say, you know, this is this is personal. It's not business. It's not work. Deal with it yourself, uh, which obviously is, is not the way to go. And it's not uh, consistent with the laws that we have now. Great point about biases. And I, one of the things that uh, one of the concerns that I have is we've had this tremendous shift over the years where, you know, for a long time, of course, complainants were just not believed or they were shown the door when they had the nerve to complain about the treatment they were suffering. And then we kind of went to the other extreme where it seemed like companies were prepared to fire someone who was simply alleged to have engaged in harassment or particularly sexual harassment. So how do you caution people against uh, reacting too strongly before they actually ensure that the allegations are, are true? I think there are, um, the terminology um, I don't think is always understood. The terms discrimination, harassment, bullying, those terms are very extremely powerful and they're even more powerful now, as you mentioned, with the Me Too movement, with Gameshi, with all the things that have happened that I think that from the front lines perspective even, or even managers need to know what, what does bullying mean? What is harassment? I mean, I've had many cases where someone, you know, uh, managers try to, you know, say to, to a staff member, you need to work, person doesn't work, you need to work, you need to work, they don't work. Then they run to the union and say, I'm being harassed. When in actuality, they're lazy. But at the end of the day, they end up hiding behind you know, the union or the status of that in order not to do their work. Um, bullying is still used as a joke word. Bullying is now recognized by the Ministry of Labor as a health and safety issue. Yet manager will say to manager, oh, you're being a bully, you didn't bring me a cup of coffee. So I think that, I think at the, on a level of just basic saying, and that's one of the things that I do within my training. I'm like, the first part is what's the difference between an interpersonal conflict, discrimination, harassment, bullying. I give people examples. I try to get people to, to look at the definitions based on the human rights um, code or based on the Ministry of Labor of what harassment is. Again, not your own individual bias about what should be acceptable. So I think one, once people understand the terminology, then you have to still deal with people that are, you know, either falsely alleging those words because they know that they're powerful. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people just misunderstand a situation. Um, so I think there's a variety of, of ways that, that the issue can be dealt with on a, on a more, um, a, a more formal way. But I think the education now, I know that people are doing the education. I just don't know how, 
how much the education is actually being followed up. You can tick a box once a year and put people through education and training, but who's actually monitoring it? Um, yeah, who's uh, you make a great point. I mean, we often say there's a big difference between managing and harassing, and yet there is this you know belief in people. Sometimes people understand it and they try to abuse the system, and sometimes people genuinely don't understand it. Uh, but either way, you need to make sure that the allegations are, are accurate before you take any disciplinary action. So I did tell you that the time would fly by, and so I am mindful of time. But uh, when we were preparing for this, you did raise an interesting point about bullying and harassment in the COVID-19 world, which I, I thought perhaps we could end on. So maybe you could share your thoughts on that. Well, I think uh, what COVID has done, um, in some ways, it's brought people together. They're able to be with their family. They're able to take a conference call and and be in that space with their children. It's extremely stressful. But what I also know is that it, it's, it's now um, given another uh, platform for bullies to take. Cyberbullying has always been... Um, around as long as we've had technology. I mean, the number of youth that are committing suicide over being bullied online has been just completely unacceptable. But I think what's happening now is that people are actually using, um, you know, with the COVID and people doing um, Zoom and all sorts of different platforms in order to communicate, they're now using those platforms to continue bullying um, either at work or, or off of work. Um, again, even criticizing, you know, what's in the background of somebody's Zoom picture or the fact that their child is yelling or their dog is barking. Um, and the other thing that's happening, and there's been a bit of research that's been done, is that individuals that have been cyber stalked, either in a domestic situation or by a stranger or even someone at work, um, now having to go online and doing all this Zoom or even you and I not being in the room right now, people are like, are they recording? Are they taking screenshots? Are they going to make fun of me afterwards? They're actually experiencing PTSD because they've actually had hackers go into their domestic situations. People are able to find people by clicks of buttons. So by turning on that computer and being forced to use this type of technology every single day for individuals that have been victims of abuse of that technology, now they're dealing with it hundreds of times a day, whereas at least before they could, you know, put a towel over their computer, turn their phones off. Now it's like you have a meeting at 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock. You're now having to do A, B, and C. And there are actually programs now where people can it says hosts can record the interviews. Well, there's also programs that everybody else can do the same thing. And what are they going to do with that, that taping later or screenshots that they're taking of somebody and, and that sort of thing. So COVID is, has definitely um, employers have to be aware that because people aren't in, there's not a cubicle between them, that there's a screen, that the situation is getting better. To me, it's actually going to be escalating. Yeah, so fascinating point. I, I, I'm glad we got to that. And unfortunately, we're, we're out of time for, for the discussion. But Denise, I really, I want to thank you again. It was a great discussion. You brought us some really, really interesting points, really compelling points. And I encourage everyone to, uh, to get a copy of, of the book, either digital or, or on paper, um, because it really is a great read. Uh, and now I will take my opportunity to, uh, to fire away.
So what I'd like to talk about briefly today is the question that seems to keep coming up in our practice, which is whether people have to go to work, if I can simplify it that much. We are at a stage in the COVID-19 pandemic where people are getting back to business, people are being recalled to work either from a layoff or from working from home. And in our practice at Rudner Law, in the webinars we're doing, in my role as 680 News' uh, go-to employment lawyer, the most common question we're getting breaks down to this. Do I have to go back to the workplace when I'm recalled? And the simple answer is yes. And it's actually fascinating to most of us that so much has changed in such a brief time that we're even asking the question. In the past times, no one we all knew that if you went to work on Monday and Tuesday, you couldn't just choose not to go to work on Wednesday. I mean, you might do that and call in sick, but you need to just have the option. You basically had to lie about it. Uh, whereas now, people seem to think that they have this option to just decide that they don't want to go back to work when they're being directed to by their employer. They can just decide they're not ready yet. They prefer not to. And what's perhaps even more surprising is so many employers don't seem to think they can do anything about this. The bottom line is that attending at work wasn't a choice before and it's not now. If you've been on layoff, if you've been working from home and you're directed to go back to the workplace, you have to. And if you don't, you're, you're risking your job. And if you think that you're gonna stay at home and continue to collect uh, benefits like the CERB, um, you risk that also because the CERB is there for people who cannot work or are unable to work not people who choose not to. I think it's important to understand there, there are three exceptions to this rule that you have to go back to work and very quickly stated. The first one is if you are entitled to a leave of absence, if you are unable, and I focus on the word unable, to work due to COVID-19. Second exception is if there is a true need for accommodation under human rights laws. And the third exception is you have the right to refuse unsafe work. But a general concern about going out in public, a general concern about being in the workplace, that's not going to trigger any of those entitlements and nor will a preference. And, and one of the examples we've seen a few times lately is if someone chooses to stay home and look after their children, that's not a need if there are other viable options. There must be a specific legitimate basis for saying that you are unable to work due to COVID-19 or that you need accommodation under human rights laws. So I'm encouraging everyone, please don't risk your job. If you're an employer, please don't compromise your business interests by assuming what the law says. We're working with many clients on both sides of the fence, so to speak, to help them understand their rights and obligations. I think I mentioned this last month, we, we prepared a 30 page guide to getting back to business, which I'm happy to share. So feel free to reach out and we'll get you a copy, but don't make any assumptions because as we always say, most errors are made because people just don't take the time to understand their rights and their obligations in the employment relationship. That's all I have to say on that topic. So that's all the time we have for season three, episode seven of Fire Away. I do want to thank everyone for tuning in and in particular, thank Denise Koster for joining us today for a great discussion. Well, whether they are pandemic related or otherwise, we're continuing to see employers and employees making mistakes because they don't take the time to understand their rights and their obligations. And the basic reason is simple. They don't treat their employment relationships as legal relationships. At Rudner Law, we want to help people make informed decisions. So I invite all of you to keep up to date on employment law issues by following our social media, by subscribing to our newsletter, and by checking out our COVID-19 resource center on our website. Also encourage you to email us if you'd like a copy of our 30-page guide to getting back to business. But as I always say, none of this replaces legal advice based upon your specific, specific circumstances. If you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. 
So feel free to reach out to us. I will also remind you that our next episode will air on September 15th. We'll be talking to Brian Schiffman of the Vaughan Chamber of Commerce, who will tell us about how businesses are handling the getting back to normal or the new normal or whatever we're calling it. I'll remind you as well that past episodes can always be found on YouTube, on our website, and archived on Facebook and LinkedIn. And if you like or subscribe to our channels, you get notifications when they go live. And lastly, as always, thank you to Rob, thank you to Rebecca, and thank you to Mark for helping to put the show on and making it all go so smoothly. Thank you guys again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.